Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 18 of season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where as always, you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Today, folks, it's an honor to welcome a true legend in the field of strength and conditioning and athlete preparation, Mr. Scott Livingston. Scott has been working in the field of athletic performance for over 25 years. He was hired at Concordia University in 1990 as one of the first full-time strength and conditioning coaches at a Canadian university. In 1998, Scott began his career in the National Hockey League as a strength and conditioning coach for the New York Islanders followed by two seasons with the New York Rangers, and ultimately with the historic franchise of the Montreal Canadiens. Scott's renowned for his dedication to building more efficient, more effective, and more resilient athletes. And Scott has trained and reconditioned athletes at every level, including professional, Olympic, collegiate, and highly motivated recreational athletes. In this episode, Scott shares his thoughts on his training philosophy, the evolution of strength coaching from the 1990s through to today, athlete preparation and how the pendulum swings from one decade to the next. Scott also talks about the importance of athlete health in this whole story, physical preparation heading into the grueling NHL playoffs, and of course his take on the evolution of high performance. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on this topic, then please check out my conversation with Dr. Fergus Connolly in Season 3, Episode 5 on Winning Habits, Adaptability, and 59 Lessons, as well as my conversation with Dr. Dan Clether from St. Mary's University in London in the UK in Season 3, Episode 4 on Training Wisdom, Periodization, and the Cardinal Rule. Awesome. Well, if you're new to the podcast, just a quick little update here. We are just over two weeks away from the release of my upcoming new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. What are the experts saying about Peak? Dr. Fergus Connolly, PhD, says, Peak is one of the most impressive and detailed books on applied sports science ever published, a must-have for any practitioner in performance. You can check out more at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org, O-R-G, for more info and what the experts are saying about Peak. And if you're keen, you can definitely pre-order as well on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, or your local booksellers. Before we start, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. And Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean middle water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, that's B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 18 with Scott Livingston. Enjoy. Scott, appreciate you uh, carving out some time today. My pleasure. Well, listen, Scott, your resume definitely speaks for itself, and 
you've been working with elite athletes for almost three decades, I think now. So during that time, you know, you've worked and learned from the best and the best when it comes to athlete preparation and therapy. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your training philosophy and how that's evolved over your career? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess my philosophy is um, to really look at the whole athlete and to um, understand the complete picture of what the athlete does with their body and what they do in, in their life and uh, what are the demand, the true demands physically and uh, from time constraint perspective, from uh, logistics perspective, all the different things that come into play. Understanding that, you know, preparation for an athletic endeavor um, requires a lot of different uh, components to come to the table. And all of those components have different um, prioritization depending on the time of year, the athlete in front of me, the type of uh, deficits that they have uh, currently, the things they need to be able to do uh, and to be successful. And so I try to take all those things into account um, and then work from there and, and hopefully work with other individuals who are supporting that athlete if, if that is the case if not then try to carve out with that athlete and their coach usually everybody has a coach what they need to do and and I guess that links with um, the fact that I've been practicing as both a, a therapist and a strength conditioning or performance uh, coach for the better part of 30 years and when I practice I always bring those two worlds together um, into what I called reconditioning which is really a holistic way of looking at physical preparation to build robustness and make sure that the athlete is really robust and healthy um, my my view is that i'd rather have an athlete that's able to deliver 90 percent of themselves 100 percent of the time than deliver 100 percent of themselves 60 percent of the time so that's kind of the approach i take uh in the way that i work that's fascinating and you know you mentioned obviously the almost 30 years and of course in 1990 you were one of the first full-time strength coaches i believe hired at a canadian university so you know for you, can you talk about the training environment then versus the training environment now and, you know, the potential pros and cons of how how that's changed and evolved over the years? Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of things have changed in the in the past 30, 40 years um, in performance preparation for athletes. Um, and certainly that varies by nation, I think. Um, being from Canada, Canada was uh, relatively highly influenced by the United States. And back in the 70s and 80s, the U.S. was going through sort of a, call it an educational uh, upramping around the, the notion of uh, performance support around athletes. And that was predominantly in the NCAA and with their Olympic athletes. And so their Olympic athletes tended to be prepared at universities. So you saw these professionals uh, deemed strength and conditioning coaches at these universities and then all the training and support practitioners around them really come to the forefront, I would say, in the 80s. Um, and so I was being educated in my exercise science degree in that sort of time frame. So you saw 
the world sort of coming around to, you know, needing to prepare to, to play. And, you know, Canada's favorite game is hockey <clears throat> in the 70s and 80s. It was pretty typical that the National Hockey League player, you know, spent the better part of the offseason fishing, uh, golfing and, and relaxing at the cottage. Yep. Then came to training camp and was basically whipped into shape. And there was a bit of a sea change in Canada in that, uh, probably in the mid-80s when the NHL players kind of had their uh, butts handed to them by the Russians. And uh, there was a, you know, a series of tournaments in the early to mid-80s that sort of redefined, I think, sport performance in hockey in Canada and by virtue sport performance around performance athletes in general because it was such an influential sport in Canada. Um, and so you started to see the upramping of cardiovascular preparation around hockey players and then sort of the same period of time, you know, I think the Olympic athlete preparation, um, you know, world was starting to spin up in Canada as well. You saw the people training our track and field athletes like Ben Johnson and, and et cetera around that and, and all the, some of the things that were, went on around that that were negative and both positive and uh, the NHL started to hire strength conditioning coaches uh, in the early 90s and so you started to see this kind of change around athlete preparation both professionally and and uh, at our national team level and even at the university level and as you had mentioned I was probably the first strength conditioning coach ever hired at a Canadian university and so at that time Really, strength and conditioning was almost the purview of, of football in most universities in Canada. They would usually hire a, an offensive line coach who lifted weights, and he was kind of the guy that kind of drove that. And most most of the athletes were getting their information from you know muscle magazines and all these kind of things. And there was a I would say a big steroid boom in the '80s that was kind of de definitive of some of the training that was going on, and then testing started coming in, and et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of flux, a lot of change in the 90s, um, a lot of sort of uh, experimentation around training. There were a few people in Canada like Charles Polican who were kind of leaders in, in the strength conditioning side of things in terms of, you know, upratcheting people's knowledge in that area. And as the 90s sort of came to a close, uh, you, you saw pretty much a, a complete understanding that athletes had to be prepared to play professional sports, to work uh, at the, to play at the national level, and so uh, you know through the 2000s and into now, it's become kind of commonplace that everybody has performance training support around them, um, and then the science and the techniques around that have changed measurably over time. I think that there was a an un unfavorable balance in the beginning um, around strength training anyways it was sort of a derivative of the three major strength sports the olympic lifting powerlifting, and bodybuilding kind of drove the methodology around that uh, as well as ncaa football preparation and so you know that was kind of the driver of how people trained for most of the 90s and into the 2000s and then people started to recognize that you had to train different athletes differently for different sports and so that's changed and um, the notion of um, the internet has changed things the availability of information is far more um, significant you know when I was growing up 
you were really lucky to be able to run into the right mentor or the right piece of information at a conference or some event, if there even were any conferences or events to go to. And I think over the last 15 years or so, there's been, you know, kind of a counterbalance to that where now we have a massive YouTube uh, and Google experience where you can pretty much get any kind of information you want. And it's really sifting through what makes sense, doesn't make sense. And then, you know, understanding it and applying it and, and the experience side of things is really the counterbalance to all that. So now we see, you know, everybody has a strength coach, but what are they, what's the qualitative difference between each of them and how do they practice and all those kinds of things are what seems to be spinning on the internet today. So I don't know if that answers your question. It was a fairly long winded answer. (laughs) That's terrific. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, the athletes that you're seeing now coming in with this exposure, as you mentioned, you know, strength coaches, being able to, uh, you know, trainers being able to access all this information. There's a plethora of information everywhere, um, almost an overload, if you will. And in terms of the athlete's preparedness now compared to a decade or two decades ago, you know, that trend obviously seems to be moving in in one direction. Are there elements of that 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 are lacking in terms of the certain athletes that you might see? Um, or we're, you know, traditionally, you know, a few decades back, they would have been more sound in certain areas than they are today. Yeah, I think what we're what we've seen um, is kind of a you know that typical pendulum swing from you know in my early career where you were really introducing a lot of this this information to a lot of sports, especially in Canada. I think it was a little bit different in the states when I was first starting, but in Canada, you know, if you went to a university. Other than a football team, your hockey, basketballs, and certainly your women's teams, you know, barely did any kind of uh, off the court or off the field types of training. That was adapted. And, and so you've seen a, a change, a dimensional change over the last 20 years, 25 years in everybody's preparation. I think what is happening now is that there, everybody comes prepared from a fitness standpoint the question mark now is, are they being prepared in the right way so that they remain um, healthy and robust? And I think the pendulum has swung to the opposite side in the sense that, you know, everybody's idea of training was you had to deliver it and you had to deliver intensity and volume and uh, qualitative uh, programming, et cetera, et cetera. And with, without a huge alignment to, you know, did this, was this athlete technically more fit and more resilient or were they just more fit? So did they, did they test up well and then they, you know, they went into their season and did they play well? So now you're starting to see not so much a swing back, but you're certainly seeing uh, a pulling back of the, the pendulum where sports science is starting to ask the questions you know, is more better and uh, how does quality play a part in that and how does recovery play a part in that? And, um, you know, all those different question marks are, are the things that are being asked now. And, and, and there's a lot of influence in that marketplace. Um, it's not hard to find somebody who will train your son or your daughter now. And it's not hard to invest in, in finding that the, the harder part now is to find, um, the, the right quality with the right emphasis, um, and, and, 
And the big question I think now is how much is too much? What's necessary? Um, and how does it all fit into the bigger picture of athlete preparation, which is, I think, what we're dealing with today is the, as the big, are, are the bigger questions in the marketplace. Yeah, you mentioned athlete health being such a key cornerstone um, for yourself. And, of course, in the last decade, decade and a half, you know, nutrition's exploded, sleep around recovery as well. Has that notion of, of athlete health always been something that for you in the, has been an important aspect or has that developed since your days at Concordia? Yeah, I think it's been a, it's always been an underpinning for me because of my therapeutic background. I think that, you know, when, in my early career, when I was at Concordia, I was experimenting with methodological uh, practice, trying to really cut my teeth and understand, you know, how you got guys stronger. And I was kind of in that, uh, you know, in that phase of bigger, faster, stronger through the nineties. But I think, um, I came to realize that that didn't always equate to uh, resiliency and um, the athlete being able to deliver themselves all the time. And so I started asking questions around that and how I could better prepare an athlete to do what it was that they wanted to do, probably in the mid-90s. And, um, you know, I, I ran into um, Greg Cook in the States, who's a pretty famous uh, gentleman in the industry around, you know, bringing that that therapeutic sort of uh, lens to the situation of, of how we move and the quality of movement. And that really meeting him and a few other influential parties, um, you know, biased my my mindset towards, you know, physical resiliency and understanding where it all fit and getting better and better at that over time. And really, I think that's where I've put my, um, you know, my flag in the sand has been to, to, as I said at the beginning, to make the availability of the athlete, um, the, the priority rather than the overall, uh, uh, testing up and fitness of the athlete, because I think it's certainly important for an athlete to be fit and to be prepared. But I think if you've done that at the, unfortunate disservice of their resiliency then there's really no purpose if you've got somebody who's in great shape but they're sitting on the bench because they're injured you know absolutely and you know resiliency is often such a obviously such a key part of, of of professional hockey and playoff hockey and of course we're in the midst of playoff hockey right now and i know the stanley cup's often referred to as the hardest trophy to win in sports and you know you'd know that uh, maybe better than anybody else having spent so much time working in the nhl uh, most recently with the Canadians, you know, for yourself, when you guys were wrapping up a season, you know, a long season before the playoffs were about to start, how did, you know, what were some, what were some of the factors or things that you were considering in order to support that resiliency and readiness in your guys before a, uh, you know, real tough grind of a playoff schedule? Yeah. I mean, it really is, um, probably one of the most, if not the most difficult trophy to win in sport. Um, you know, just as a matter of reality, I would say probably of the eight or 10 best friends that I have in the league who are either strength conditioning coaches or therapists, I think only one that I've known in the past 30 years has actually won a Stanley Cup. Wow. <laughs> I was league 11 years, never won. I have two buddies who've been head therapists for over 25 years, have never won. So, you know, it is not an easy trophy to win. Uh, and to your point, um, when I was in the league, I mean, you know, it's only 10 years ago, but things have changed dimensionally in that time. As an example, when I was 
first working in the league, I would say nutrition was a sort of a side affair in sport, mm-hmm. in professional sport. Um, it really was very little brought to the table around the athlete training table, how they were supported. Um, and then that started to change a little bit as I was finishing my career where we were able to convince management to spend money on, you know, lunch and post game dinners and things like this, uh, and making sure that they were nutritionally sound and, and, and helped the athlete, uh, recover and, and prepare and be prepared. And I think that that's changed since I've left. I mean, pretty much every team in the league has a full kitchen and, probably nutrition practitioners aligned with that kitchen and, and what they're delivering. And so, you know, they're trying to dot their I's and cross their T's around that. There are certainly, you know, difficulties when you travel on the road and opposition arenas. And it's sometimes surprising actually. And I had a conversation with a colleague of mine who was, who's worked in professional sport as well. And, you know, professional sports, uh, and he coined the, the the idea, so I don't own this, but he, he said, you know, it's it's a little bit like going to Oz and, and finally meeting the wizard, you know, and uh, expecting that the wizard is some really special thing when really he's just a, a guy in the back with a, you know, a loudspeaker. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what pro sport is like sometimes. It's not quite as robust or as impressive behind the curtain as as one would expect it to be um, professional sports organizations are reticent to spend uh, large amounts of money on what i would call the infrastructure around performance athletes um, you know there's a little bit it's not it's changed I, I must say it's changed dimensionally and it's getting better but in my day i would say the practice was you know you you had a a bunch of F1 cars in your garage and you were really, you were managing them like you had a, you know, a Canadian tire garage, you know, and it just wasn't the way it should be. In my opinion, it has changed, but it still has a long way to grow. Um, so I think ROI side of things, uh, on how they support and, and, and manage their athletes, uh, can still improve. I think we see, the highest levels of that um, in some national sports organizations, not all. Um, I think we see it in some unique professional surroundings in the world. Um, but, you know, I would say most of the time there's, 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 um, there's spots that can be improved for sure on, on how we take care of our athletes and prepare. And going back to the start of your question, were there things that we did to make sure that the athletes were more resilient in the playoffs? I think we did the best we could. Uh, it really is a big grind because of the travel, the circumstances under which the logistics uh, are framed. Sports leagues don't always set up the league and, and structured travel and, and, and all the other things that they do in the best service of the athlete. It is an entertainment uh, program. And For so sure. at the end of the day, that takes priority, unfortunately, over necessarily the, the product of the athletes that are delivering the product. Yeah, it's definitely um, similarly in the NBA. It's, it's, it's tricky to, to manage all those things and, you know, you touched on earlier how young kids now almost all have a trainer by 11, 12, 13. And, of course, many pro athletes now have their own trainers or teams that they work with in the offseason. I know it's something very common in the NBA 
and and those teams are, you know often work in conjunction or communicate with organizations around certain players and sometimes those relationships are are healthy and unfortunately sometimes those relationships are are somewhat adverse you know in, in your time in working with a, with a team and of course being on the other side working independently you know, can, can you comment on the state of the training now in terms of you know if if teams should be working with their players throughout the entire course of the season where where we stand with with being able to kind of bring other practitioners under the umbrella um if if we even need to of some of these teams or is, is really just the player support you know number one really in all this well, i think every every league has its um strengths and weaknesses its circumstance circumstances under which it operates some of those things are so much higher power than what is necessarily best for the athlete or for the product. Um, you know, at the national hockey league level, the collective bargaining agreement between the, um, the players and the league, you know, really defines, uh, the athlete as a, an owned commodity between, you know, the, the day that training camp opens and the day that the season completes itself. I'm not even sure that most people would know that hockey players are not paid uh, a salary during the playoffs. <clears throat> They're essentially playing for bonus money. And when they finish their playoff run, they uh, are no longer, uh, you know, sort of under the, the broad supervision of the team simply because their collective bargaining agreement says that the team has no authority over them during that period. So essentially, you know, your ideal circumstance would be that the players were, were contracted throughout the year, that if they were a, uh, a part of, of whatever professional team they were with, they would be living in that city and training in that city's facility with all of its support systems around it throughout the year. But that's not typical. That's atypical. And it's I would say it's atypical for pretty much every sports league. I think in, um, you know, European soccer or football, as they call it, um, it's a little different because the season is almost never ending. Yeah. <laughs> 11 months of the year. You've seen um, uh, a definite ratcheting up around, you know, organizations like Man City and, and, and Manchester and Liverpool who've, who've spent some significant money around building performance organizations around their athletes um, because they have these uh, academies and then they have the, the, the athletes and the athletes are functionally owned by the team. And so that whole systematic around the way a soccer player is developed by an organization and then owned as a commodity by the organization is much different in professional football than it is in, in the four majors in North America. And I would say in the four majors in North America, it's more along the lines of what hockey is, is like where the player really isn't owned in the off season. And so at that point, you know, there's, there's another part of this, which is the, what you would call the natural distrust of the player for management. So if you're hired by the organization their viewpoint is no matter how good you are, your your interest lies in uh, fulfilling your job for management. And so their viewpoint is you're not necessarily, even if 
you have the greatest intentions, they're suspect of your intentions. And so it's become not only trendy, but also I think um, the, the, the trusting uh, dynamics of how an athlete prepares themselves in the off season is to engage themselves, somebody that they have faith has uh, total focus on the outcome of their training <clears throat> and isn't, has no other agenda um, aligned with the organization. And then you throw into the fact that they, you know, may not live in that city and they have to find somebody to support them. So yeah, you end up having a, a mixed bag of professionals who are supporting these athletes in other cities. And I think what's trending now is that the organizations are the ones that are being successful with their athletes are the ones that are developing what I would call a performance philosophy, which was what I sort of tried to do when I was with the Canadians, uh, a performance preparation philosophy. And they, they sort of broadcast that philosophy to the uh, people who are supporting the athlete mm -hmm. and try to bring that professional into the circle of trust of the organization to a degree. Now, Sometimes egos get in the way there, and sometimes it's not as easy a, an equation to make happen. But I think that's happening more and more. Last summer, I was invited down um, by Dr. David Martin, who's the, for all intents and purposes, performance director of the Philadelphia 76ers. And they ran a really powerful sort of performance event for two days where the you know overall intention was to bring in their performance team, bring in external performance professionals and really sort of upscale the knowledge of their team in an effort to sort of make sure that they were doing cutting edge stuff. And I think you're seeing that more and more now. It's being led by, by people who are in those kinds of roles. Um, and I think that that's a natural transition and change. But will you ever have all the athletes um, who play for the Philadelphia 76ers training with the, in the Philadelphia 76ers facility all year long. I think that's a, a pipe dream. Yeah, it's, uh, it is amazing to see the, sh the shift, as you mentioned, and, and sharing that philosophy and bringing people under that umbrella, you know, definitely seems like the most appropriate way to go. And, um, it is interesting to see the, some of the scenarios where it works really well. And then some of the scenarios where there is that sort of friction, um, but when we talk about even today's game, I mean, injury rates are something else. If we shift gears here a little bit, whether it's the, you know, hamstrings in the NFL or, or managing minutes in the NBA or in the NHL, you know, what are your thoughts on, on injury rates in, in today's sporting environment, whether it's at the elite level or even sort of youth elite level and how that compares to generations past and, and what some of those, you know, gaps might be in, 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 in preparing athletes today? Yeah, I think that that's really lends itself to the beginning of this conversation, which is, you know, over time, you've had this transition uh, to more and more value oriented preparation for the athletes. But I think that, you know, I, I use this analogy when I talk about um, athletes and preparation, I call it the athlete bank account analogy. And if you think of all the, um, the requisite preparative um, um, time sucks and energy sucks in an athlete's life as dollar uh, equations. So they have a bank account of time and energy <clears throat> to be able to deliver to all these different requisite training and preparation elements. 
And let's say for ease of math, they have a hundred bucks in their, in their bank account. Um, what's happened is that most of the time you have different professionals who are assembled around an athlete. Um, and that may be in a team or individual sport uh, dynamic. And these people, um, they're uh, empowered with uh, a role and, and asked to perform um, a, a job. And that job usually is that they want to get some functional result with what they're, the time they're given and the moment they're given to essentially validate their you know, use or, or value in the preparation picture. So if you come to me as the strength and conditioning coach and you say, Scott, you know, you need to train this, this guy for the season. How much money do you need in order for them to be super well prepared? Well, I might say, well, I need 40 bucks. And I, I know you uh, have a nutrition background, so they might go to you, Mark, and say, you know, in order for this person to be adequately prepared from a nutritional standpoint, how much how much time and energy do you need from this athlete? Well, you, you say they need 20, you need 20 bucks. And then they go to the coach and the coach says, I need 60 bucks. And the sports psych says they need 40 bucks. Well, I think you can see that what happens is we have an over, overdraft, right? We, we, we use up too much of that time and energy because there's nobody really managing the bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody really saying, okay, Mark, uh, I know you think you need 20 bucks, but let's look at the overall picture of this athlete's preparation. Where are the true deficits and what are the things we need to do to improve those things? Um, and, and how does that, how does your involvement fit into that picture? So I talk about something I, I call deficits versus weakness, and I think a weakness is, is you can look at somebody's physiological preparation, their psychological preparation, their nutritional preparation, all these things, and they may have a series of weaknesses, i.e. they don't do this, that, and the other thing very well. But a deficit, in my viewpoint, is something they need to do well in order to succeed. And so those two things are not always equivalent. You may want somebody to have better nutritional preparation, but what they need to be doing is what they're doing right now. They could have a higher quality nutritional practice, absolutely, or they could have spend more time in the gym with me, but what do they actually need to do to succeed? And that's not, that's not a question that's well defined or managed by most performance teams because most performance teams don't have an overreaching leader whose sole job it is is to manage the bank account. And I think we're starting to see that more now where we're getting organizations engaging so-called high performance directors or sports science director, directors. And in the perfect scenario, those people should be managing the bank account. Um, and I think if you, when that starts to really get done well, I think you're going to have better and better athlete preparation models that are very much tailored to each athlete and, and considered of the true deficits. And there may be situations where you, Mark, are not involved in an athlete's preparation because they simply do that area of their preparation is not a deficit. It might be a weakness, but it's not a definite deficit. Same thing for me, but I don't think we're there yet. And in terms of some of those deficits, Scott, you know, in a perfect world, let's say off-season training or in-season training with an athlete, you know, what would be a length of time for for yourself that would be, um, you know, 
most ideal, let's say, to, to be able to work with that athlete? I know obviously real life gets in the way and, and athletes are only available for a certain amount of time, but is there a certain window that you as a practitioner like to, to be able to, to get an athlete for? I think if you have an athlete in your space for 8 to 12 weeks, it's probably more than adequate to get them physiologically and and um, you know healthfully prepared for their sport. I think if they've got more um, postseason damage that needs to be cleaned up, you know, some extra weeks in the in the blocks to be able to clean all that movement strategy stuff up would be valuable. But I think you can make a real dent in, in an athlete's true physical preparation in in as as little as six to eight weeks. So you know, having twelve would be sort of ideal, but eight is more than enough, I think. And as you you know manage or support athletes throughout a season and all the different recovery modalities that have come down the pipeline in the last sort of decade or so, you know obviously the you know cold baths, whether it's warm baths, cryotherapy, all these different uh, strategies, and I know they're sort of at the tip of the uh, pyramid in terms of recovery and and athletes definitely need to get their you know their nutrition, their training plan, and mental emotional stress and all those things kind of in place. But if we look at some of those smaller gains, those marginal gains with recovery strategies, are there certain ones that for yourself um, have more value potentially with, with athletes or is it, or is it very individual in terms of who's in front of you? Yeah, I think it's an individual reality. And I also think that, you know, we're starting to see now um, more and more research, research coming to table around, you know, all these things have a yin and yang, um, for a while there was, you know, slam the recovery into the program and get these people doing cold tubs, hot tubs, uh, you know, compression stuff, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I think we're starting to see more people doing research around what, how does that actually affect the adaptive process? And the, you know, the, the theory was that if you recovered, you better you you got better adaptation but they're actually starting to find now that in some cases certain uh recovery pro- uh, propositions um stunt adaptation or or limit some of the physiological um costs that are associated with adaptation so you know the book's not completely out on on the value proposition of all these things and i think we can never, when we have these things in play, we can never sort of play out the psychological side of things. Um, you know, one athlete's going to find a recuperative massage is just absolute money uh, for their ability to come to the game, um, you know, ready to rock and roll. Another athlete's going to feel like that completely shut them down. And I think we have different animals. Some are high neural animals, some are different, uh, lower neural animals. Uh, So there's different kinds of recuperation that may be, um, you know, inhibitive of of that neural property and some that might be facilitative. So you've got to experiment with your recovery, which I think is the same thing we're seeing in nutrition today um, is – there really isn't one way to nutrify your body for uh, your preparation. I think there are certainly, um, you know, qualitative areas uh, and, and generalities about that area of practice, but you need to experiment with your nutrition and understand what brings you energy, what digests well for you, 
um, what allows you to feel, um, you know, com completely uh, good quality energy throughout the length of an, uh, of an event that you're in. And that's going to be dimensionally different, whether you're in a short power event to a huge endurance event. And we're seeing the human body being used at huge different spectrums of demand now. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of unknown out there. It really comes down to having sort of central thematics, but then an individual um, understanding of what really qualitatively works for you. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I had a chance to chat with uh, Dr. Shona Halson last year at the Notre Dame Human Performance Summit and, of course, being a recovery expert from uh, the Australian Institute of Sport. And that was her big message at the end was this idea of, you know, whatever's making the athlete feel the best is actually, you know, that huge mental component is, is going to be play a massive role in terms of their readiness. And, you know, as you mentioned, nutrition's got a lot of similarities on that front in terms of the, the diet that'll work best for that athlete in front of you. Um, we talked a little bit before, Scott, about, you know, time limits even on an athlete when we talk professionals if we shift gears here to sort of elite amateur and some of the challenges for coaches practitioners and working with elite amateurs versus the pro sports can you talk about some of those challenges and and how you know sometimes having limited resources can can lead to whether it's you know creativity or other things or, or strategies that you might use yeah, I mean, the elite athlete, uh, you know, call it the Olympic athlete or, or as you said, the, the amateur, so-called amateur athlete at this point, you know, their, their challenges are usually uh, resource uh, dominant. They don't have the same amounts of money that professional sport have. Um, when they do, a lot of times that money is... Um, you know, they're having to self-manage it and, and, and there's a lot of other stressors coming at them, you know, that are not necessarily there for a professional athlete who has lots of not only money, but, you know, structure and resources supportive around them. Most national team athletes, it's very rare that a national team uh, athlete is really in a surrounded facility. Now, that depends on, um, you know, the, the countries and the uh, national sports organizations and whether they've centralized or they operate in a centralized manner or, or logistically. I mean, if, if I take, talk specifically about Canada, one of the tough things in Canada is just the, the monumental size of Canada. And so, unfortunately, you know, we have to put our resources in some big cities and hope that the athletes will migrate there and most of our national sports organizations have athletes that are from all over Canada, but it's very rare that all those athletes are able to be accommodated in one place and that the resources are there to have them live there and eat there and do all these different things. So those are the biggest challenges, I think, for elite athletes is consistency, uh, quality support that's consistent. There are some really amazing practitioners in Canada working in their little uh, silos and spaces across Canada, but you know, it's it's sort of a rare commodity that they're all brought together in one place. And even where they are, there are, you know, dimensional challenges around that in a lot of the institutes, just again, around resources and, and being able to bring enough money to the table for people to really spend quality time and, and track side time or field side time or pool side time with the coaches and the support staff, etc. I mean, in terms of ways of, of beating those challenges. I think you see some 
really unique uh, programs and situations, whether it's uh, an organization like Own the Podium or an organization like I worked with, B210, or or other um, not-for-profit ventures that are bringing resources to the table to support, you know, athletes um, and, and wrap bigger pro- performance programs around them uh, when when they really have the chance to win. Um, I don't think that our in Canada, anyways, our our best athletes are they're, they're, they they can always be given better opportunity to succeed and more resources. But I think where we have our biggest challenge is at the developmental level and at the level that's just underneath that crust of the of the super elite athlete. Um, those athletes really have almost nothing most of the time. And it's really almost by luck and circumstance, you know, happenstance that a lot of these athletes actually become really successful, which is actually another side conversation that I've had on my podcast a few times with some people. And that's really around, you know, do you need everything to succeed or is it better to have um, holes uh, that you, that require you to, to find, Uh, the resiliency to overcome. Um, So I think that there's a nice yin yang there between making sure that the athlete has what they need to succeed, but also has to overcome some challenges in order to be um, great. You know, absolutely. And, you know, you've obviously worked with countless Canadian Olympic athletes, uh, Scott, and, you know, could you share a story or, you know, maybe a lesson learned in some of the athletes that you've coached over the years? (laughs) um you know sure there's lots of stories i mean i I would say this is a this is a good um one that i've reflected on a few times Uh, i was working with a a very high level bobsetter uh by the name of helen upperton and helen wouldn't mind me telling the story because i've told it to her before or with her and other groups before but she was uh, i think two years out from the olympic games in Vancouver and we were in the midst of you know there was a performance group around Helen including the national sports organization people and everything was being brought to bear for for Helen to have success and Helen unfortunately had a crash and and the preview to this is that I used to spend a lot of time going back to the early conversation talking about resiliency and the ability to be uh, qualitative there and available when you needed to and my viewpoint was always that I feel that oftentimes we overtrain our athletes, not to the degree that they are technically overtrained, but that we just um, do do more than is necessary to be successful. Um, and I almost think it's just a it's a requisite character trait of, of of training, you know, at every level. So segue forward, Helen um, has a crash and breaks a rib um, and is unable to basically do anything for the last uh, six or seven weeks of the season. So from, I think about January on, she's, she's on the sideline and because it's a rib fracture, she's really not able to train. So she doesn't do really any strength training or fitness preparation for, I think it's about seven, maybe eight weeks. And then she has to do sort of a real quick up ramp and go, you know, maybe a week or so to prepare herself. And she goes down to Lake Placid to, to uh, race. And she actually wins her and her break woman win the push uh, competition in the race, meaning that 
win the race, but they run, you know, they always time and there's somebody that always sort of is the winner during a race of, of who, who pushed the sled the fastest. And she and her brake woman pushed the sled the fastest after her being completely off for eight weeks. So my point to this story is that, you know, I think sometimes we bias too much to preparation and that the body is very, you know, there, especially when you look at the veteran athlete, the athlete with many years of training age, there's kind of this consistency of preparation availability that's there that um, we have to honor the fact that it's not always how much you do that gets you to have your success. It's, good quality, it's, it's a combined rest, and sometimes I think we have to bias more to less is more instead of more is more. Absolutely, and that, that wisdom, Scott, you know, is that just from years of experience for athlete or for coach in terms of being able to put their finger on that, that right dose or right amount, or are there any, you know, I'm sure everybody wants to know a shortcut to be able to get to that right dose, right? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to monitoring and stuff. I, you know, I was, it's late in my career that a lot of the really high quality monitoring strategies and systems were brought to the table. And I think that that's something that's becoming more the norm now. And I think if you have a high quality monitoring system around your athletes and you don't take uh, moments, but you take trends over time, you can start, I think, if you do it really well and you do it with the coach and you do it with the athlete uh, and you you do it in an informative way and you connect it to the training, I think you can come up with a very tailored and understood reality of that athlete. In other words, how does the athlete respond to any particular training um, um, stimulus um, how do they respond to competition how do they respond to nutritional changes all these different things and I think if you've got a quality monitoring system you'll start to see the trends where you know if an, if a, if a meal wasn't eaten here or or the, the the meal quality changed because you were in China or your you know post flight this was the status you start to see those trends and that's when you can start to mitigate those issues with uh, interventions. And I think that's when it becomes really, really dialed in. Um, and really you, you get down to the, to the brass tacks that every athlete's an individual. There's going to be athletes that come off of airplanes and feel like a million bucks and they're able to compete the next day. And there's going to be athletes that come off of an airplane and are absolute junk for three days after they get off the plane. Uh, I think you discover that over time by monitoring, journaling, being connected to, and it really comes down to the concept of being aware. You know, I think in this day and age, we're becoming more knowledgeable about this concept of awareness and, and how we connect with, to awareness, awareness of our mood, awareness of our energy, awareness of, of how food interacts with us. And the more that the athlete becomes aware, the more they can make better choices, better interventions, and uh, and train more effectively for how their body responds to it. Yeah, we'll be in uh, China later this year with Canada basketball. So that idea of coming off the plane and some guys feeling great and some guys not so much is definitely really appropriate in team sports for sure. And, you know, in, in this whole conversation, Scott, even around just, just readiness, athlete preparation, you know, where does emotion come into play in terms of, you know, the, the athlete's emotion to be able to fuel performance, but also to, 
to be in the right mindset, to be able to feel good, as you mentioned, in terms of whether it's the recovery strategy, the training plan, you know, how important is emotion in this whole story? I think it's a huge part. Um, again, it's a huge part that has significant unknowns um, and is highly individual. There's going to be, as to your point, athletes who respond to um, motivational speeches, as an example, and their emotions fire up and they're able to bring more of themselves. Other athletes are going to find that um, brings their, their game down. Some athletes are going to find um, the warm-up uh, strategy uh, helps get them focused and connected. Other athletes are going to find that it fatigues them. Um, some athletes are going to find that eating at a certain time of day is going to make them feel a sense of readiness and preparedness based on routine and uh, their emotional connection to that routine. Um, some athletes, you know, we, we talk nowadays a lot about the concept of flow and how we get into flow states. And really, I think flow, the, the yin to the yang of flow is structure. And I think every athlete has to discover um, what, the, what the scaffolding of preparation they need to have in terms of structure is in order for them to be in that flow state. So to be in that emotionally uh, capable place where they need to be. Some athletes, being in flow means being quiet and connected. Other athletes means being um, motivated and energetic. Uh, other athletes, it means being, um, you know, supported. It's, it's, you know, A to Z. And so I think the, the, what we're seeing today with all the support teams around athletes and, and the organizations is a greater and greater recognition that we have to be connected to the individual. And that's one of the hardest elements of working in team sports is how do you make sure the individual has what they need to succeed and the team has what it needs to succeed, which are not always dimensionally the same. So, you know, that is a challenge of team sport. Yeah, and this dovetails into my, uh, one of my last questions here for you, Scott, and that's around the evolution of sport performance in terms of strength and conditioning, in terms of performance therapy. You know, where do you think we'll be in the next five years or 10 years? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's where I, I think I'd like to see us be, and then there's what the realities are. I think the the drivers of how we support performance athletes um, are often have agendas associated with them. So, you know, organizationally at the professional level or the national team level, um, there's the agenda of, of what, you know, what from an external standpoint is, is viewed as uh, en vogue or necessary. Um, so, you know, a simple example is I think you're seeing right now because of AI and data and, um, you know, all the information that we have, we have huge data analytics, um, portals in our organizations now, but a lot of disclarity on how to use it properly, um, where it really plays a part. And I think you're starting to see sort of that pendulum that flows towards, using a lot of this stuff, but not 
really understanding the ramifications of its use, which is very typical when we inject technology into environments. So I think what I would hope to see in the next 10 years is that we we come to terms with the use of technology, its true value proposition, um, and really get the best out of those technologies and yet stay true to the the art and science of coaching and the connection to the athlete as a human being and a human individual um, and use the technology more or less to, to, to inform ourselves uh, more about that individual and to support that individual in a better and better way. I think that that's probably 10 years away. I think in between now and 10 years from now, we're going to see a lot of misuse of this stuff um, a lot of places where it, it um, gets overused or overexposed and in some cases challenges people a little bit. Um, but that's the net, the nature of injecting technology into any environment. Terrific, Scott. And if you bring this conversation full circle here and you know, we talked about the start of your career, you know, was there a moment that you knew you wanted to get into this profession? Or was there an experience there? Or, and as well, you know, to wrap things up, you know, why do you do what you do? Um, I don't know if I ever had an epiphany moment, uh, back when I was younger. I think that I, I fell upon this industry. Uh, it sort of became a bit of a, a sense of, of, you know, the ability to accomplish and help other people accomplish. And, um, you know, I, I wanted, I think like most of us wanted to be a a professional or performance athlete and, um, my body didn't uh, live up to my dreams, so I, you know, how 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 I could stay connected to sport was to to become a therapist, and then to you know I happened to be in the right place at the right time to to invest in becoming a strength conditioning practitioner, and I had some early success, and then you know some re- really great circumstantial uh, connectivity along the way that allowed me to do some really cool stuff. And I guess why I've done it and why I continue to do it is I, I like the idea of finding solutions to problems. Um, I like helping um, athletes or, you know, human beings find performance solutions. And so what I do has changed dimensionally over the last five to seven years. I'm more interested now in maybe what we've talked about in this conversation, which is really how organizations, you know, support their athletes in an overall basis and, uh, and, and how we learn to speak to one another as per- performance practitioners and learn a common language of practice. That's what I'm more addicted to now. But back in the day, I really, I really enjoyed helping athletes achieve their dreams and to maybe sometimes fix a, fix a broken car that everybody thought wasn't fixable you know that that really turned my crank for a long time amazing scott listen really appreciate you carving out the time today fantastic insights you know where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your uh, great work yeah um pleasure to take the time mark i have a podcast of my own called leave your mark people can listen to that i really take a journey through my guests uh, life in performance. It's really about the life and the journey and not so much about technical stuff. And then I, uh, I can be found on Instagram at King O'Pain and Twitter at, uh, built by Scott. And I have a Facebook page around leave your mark called Scott G Livingston. So people can find me there. And then also my wife and I teach a, a holistic, uh, system of, uh, 
athlete uh, performance preparation and, and therapy called reconditioning. So if people are interested in being more holistic about the way they approach their, their preparation of their athlete, they can find us at reconditioninghq.com. Fantastic. We'll definitely include uh, those links in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And Scott, thanks again for taking the time today. You're welcome. My pleasure, Mark. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, definitely reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Thanks again, and see you next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.